This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined by Mo Stewart this week. Mo, how do you feel ahead of your Q&A debut, mate? Um, I feel all right. I feel all right. I mean, essentially, these are just questions, so it shouldn't be too difficult. But I mean, you know, we'll have to wait and see. There might be some tough ones out there. Yeah, I mean, as always, our listeners have been in touch. We we, we thank you for the contributions. We'll do our best to get through them, but it never usually works that way. We usually end up with a few spares, sadly. So if that's you, apologies. I did send out a newsletter earlier this week, answering, I think, three of them. So if if we don't get to yours, you was probably on the newsletter, let's say that. Um, but Mo, I think you can start, mate. I'll let you go first. Oh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Unfortunately, I should probably tell everyone now, I'm kind of riding out a, a bit of a cold. So if I occasionally need to do this, <coughs> I apologise. So where were we? So first, top of the shop. Uh, Mr. David Lawrence, uh, despite being an opinion I've always disagreed with, on the evidence of this season, do you think it might be time to bring in a conventional right back and change the formation to enhance Trent's talent and maybe look at him in midfield? Well, this is a debate that seemingly will never die simply because the way that Trent operates in the right-back position is always going to be risk-reward, and that risk will occasionally be highlighted. So it will be seen as a continuous problem and therefore a problem. For me, I don't think it's the solution. I just think that him starting there as opposed to emerging into that area is not going to allow it to have as much damage. I think teams can account for him easier if he's starting in midfield. I think we saw that when he started in midfield for England. In terms of the idea of the conventional right back, one thing that they haven't necessarily played with, and mainly because of, well, Mo Salah, there might be a world in which we have Joe Gomez at right back and Trent playing as a wide forward at a time when maybe Salah is more central or even not on the pitch. I think that's an option that we might see going forward. But in terms of the short term, I don't think that's a solution to what's going on now. I think the solution to what's going on now is getting the players back fit and everyone up to speed with what is required of them. Because I don't think that's where we are at the moment. I think once that happens, everyone's job gets easier. Yeah, so I've got a question from um, Bjorn Zachariasen. I think I've done quite well, actually, to an difficult start now. Um, so he says last week he was talking about Harvey Elliott and how he's quite different to Henderson and Thiago in the number eight role, even more so if you compare him with Wijnaldum and Milner. Do you think Curtis Jones could do that role in a way that is more similar to Wijnaldum and Thiago? I see him as a player with I see him as a player with the tools necessary. So it's a difficult one this because um, I'm not really sure still what Jones is going to become or what he's kind of moving towards. That Wine Aldum and Thiago role for me is about control. 
it's about keeping the ball. It's about dictating tempos, um, retention, discipline, tactical awareness, providing the team with balance. Um, it's a really, it's a proper controller role, I think. Hence why we we seem to have got Arthur and I think to offer a bit of balance for that when Thiago was in the team. Mm. Whether that role is associated with Jones, I. I would be inclined to say no, I think. Um, I think Jones is a bit more attack-minded and I think he's a bit more almost impulsive and uh, expressive than, than maybe you have to be to be to play that role. I don't think he's as disciplined either positionally and mm. um, in, in his game. I think I see Jones as like a bit of a weird, almost like Elliot in terms of he's a bit of a weird hybrid of a really attacking number eight and a forward, uh, a wide forward, a bit like Foden almost, um, but just not as good. So I think Jones's development's going to be interesting. I'm not really sure where he's going with it, if I'm honest, just yet. Mm. But in terms of that Thiago, Wijnaldum, controller, safety net player, I'm, I don't I don't see that as Jones's game, sadly. Um, so yeah, that's, that remains to be seen, how he's going to develop, to be honest, moving forward. Mm. I think I have to agree with you on that one. I think from my perspective, the main thing he lacks to do that is the decision-making. At the moment, it seems to be taking him a little bit too long to work out, to see the picture and work out what he needs to do to manipulate it. And he's being caught on the ball because of that. If he can develop that, then maybe we'll see. So my next question here comes from Raul McKenzie. Was the 1920 Liverpool team the peak of Jurgen Klopp's tenure so far? And do you think he can match or eclipse that team moving forward? Whew. I mean, when you look at the numbers that team put down, it's hard to say anything else, is it? It's it's almost like that season was the culmination of about two or three seasons leading up to it. That was and what everything was building up to. So from that perspective, yes. But I kind of think that that team was kind of there the year before as well. I do think that they were as good the year before. It's just that a few balls didn't bounce their way. But if you're going to take it as a two-season period, which I'm going to give myself the license to do, then I think yes. In terms of can he can he match that? I think he can. I think he can match it in terms of being able to be a team that is so feared, so formidable, so able to win in so many different ways. That's matchable. Whether they'll have that particular chemistry and magic that he was able to capture with the likes of Salem Mane Firmino, I don't know. Uh, we just It's hard to say for definite yes, because it was so magical. But if he doesn't, then I'm not going to knock him. Because that team that he gave us was just incredible. Yeah, so I've, I've got a question from Katie Cop, uh, regular contributor. Actually, I remember the name. We always wonder whether that's the actual name or not. Um, so she sent in a question saying, "Do you think Liverpool were right to bring, bring in just potential in Nunes, despite losing Sadio Mane, Zakiri uh, Minamino, and Debokarigi?" Yes, Johnson is back, but he's still gaining the match fitness. So, I think Nunez is 
it's a bit beyond potential for me. I think he's a bit more proven than that. I think, although he's considerably younger, I remember pointing out at the time that there was a bit of a merry-go-round at the, in the transfer window at the time. Lewandowski goes to Barcelona. Uh, Sadio Mane goes to Bayern Munich. And Liverpool get Darwin Nunes. Of those three deals, I think all clubs have got good players there, obviously. Yeah. But I think, I think generally, as like a, a an overall deal, you, you could argue Liverpool have got the best deal if Nunes lives up to anything like what we expect. Because Liverpool have got the most sustainable deal. You know, Bar- Barcelona have spent a lot of money there for Lewandowski, who's, I think, 34. They're going to be spending that money again in, in, in a season or two. Uh, and Sadio Mane, you know, we you can easily say Liverpool got Mane's best years. And m- maybe Bayern Munich are going to get uh, almost the dregs, really. Um, even though he, I, I do think he'll do quite well over there. But in terms of Nunes, I, I don't think it was a case of Liverpool just buying potential. I think Liverpool have bought a player who has proven that, although he has potential on the side and he's got plenty of years ahead of him, I think he's also showcased that he can kind of do it now. And that, that's kind of what you want from most Liverpool signs. I think that's, that's what Liverpool try and do. You want that sweet spot, that kind of Goldilock zone, where you have plenty of years ahead of you to develop and hopefully your prime still have he- still ahead of you. But you also have developed enough whereby you can hit the ground running, hopefully at Anfield as well. But like I think Salah's probably the ideal example. We got Salah when he was 25. Mane's similar, Firmino, you know, players who are, who have got years ahead of them, but have also had a bit of years development behind them as well. So, I think Nunes is is ideal in that sense. And I think although we've lost um, Minamino and, and Divock Origi, we've got in Carvalho, who is, in my opinion, going to offer similar contributions to, to what Minamino offered, uh, if not more. Um, and in terms of Divock Origi, you know, we've got we've got all the players who, who can contribute. In different ways, like Harvey Elliott's now now fit and available. Uh, he was injured for most of last season, so there's different ways of looking at that one. Yeah, I, I think another thing I would add: um, the idea of going for someone who's not potential, uh, more of a sure thing than Nunes. Well, who is that? I mean, yeah. if Lewandowski's gone to Barcelona, Haaland was always going to Man City for obvious reasons. So, who else is there, really, who Liverpool could have got? for a similar fee who would have like you say had as much upside in terms of future so yeah I'm happy with that deal definitely next question uh, it's an interesting one here from uh, Larkin I recently seen Man City and Chelsea under Tuchel send two players out to line up to take corners now I assume this is to confuse teams between an outswinger and an inswinger but I'm not sure how this works taking a man out of the box or out of the defence against a potential quick counter, seems counterintuitive. Well, it does. Although what I would say is that one of those two men will definitely have a responsibility to counter against the counter-attack. And you would assume that they would be quick enough and alert enough to be in a position where they can get into position quickly. But I think the wider idea of the not telegraphing whether it's going to be an outswinger or an inswinger it's kind of where this is coming from, isn't it? It's the idea of trying to confuse the defenders because some teams do set up very differently between the two in terms of how they're going to attack the ball, in terms of how they're going to mark. So it might be something that they've seen within training in certain situations. It helps them 
to have that bit of indecision in there. But I'm like you. Just get the right person on the delivery. That's all that matters. Yeah, so I've been sent in a question by by Luke Young. Uh, he sent he sent two, so and they're both kind of along the same line. So I'm going to kind of answer them in one. He's basically said, "Do you think the owners should back Klopp that little bit more in the transfer market so that we have better depth to match our rivals?" Such as on the fact that he's a special manager and we might not get anyone as good as him for a long time. And also says, you know, do we can keep? Do you think we can keep competing at the top with our current business model? So I think we get asked this at every Q and A. Really, it's it's a contentious issue in in the Liverpool fan base. But from my perspective, right, I've always had this. I don't see see anything wrong with the business model. I would rather Liverpool's business model than any of the other top six off the top of my head. That might be a conservational statement, but what I mean by that is, say, for example, Manchester City, who spent £100 million last, last summer on Jack Grealish and signed to get Harry Kane for £150. Sorry, £150 million. Um, you know, that, that's, that, that goes against Liverpool's culture and Liverpool's background just as much as making the ticket price of £70 a couple of years back, almost. It it just for me it just doesn't fit with what Liverpool is as as a city, as a as a place, as a club, to go and spend those extortionate figures on players. I would rather Liverpool do it the way they currently do it, which is in a sustainable way. You know, no debt placed over the club's head. Everything done in a way where we can keep operating tomorrow. Um so I, I've got no issues with that. What I, do, what I do have a slight issue with, with, and I can understand this, is in certain moments, Klopp has, has been on his knees, essentially, um, and Liverpool have, have refrained from moving almost. So that was obviously a case a few years ago when we did the centre-half in January, and we waited until the very last day of the window to get Ozan Kabak on loan, essentially, who was not very good, in my opinion. Um, now the the upshot to that you can look at further down the line. We got Ibrahim Kanate, so obviously there was a plan always in place, and that's that's why I like Liverpool's model because there's always a plan, there's always a future plan in place. Um, so you you can still look back at that and think, right, did Liverpool do the right thing or not? Because we still ended up finishing third. I think we got our top man in Kanate in the summer. He's ended up being great. So there's kind of no regrets there apart from. Liverpool dropped off from competing for the league title to competing for a fourth place spot. So it depends how you view that one. And then in this one, in in this summer, we obviously needed a midfielder. And we kind of went without. Um, whether Why we went without is not really clear. It's not really clear whether it was a, an owner's decision to not back in, in terms of finances or whether it was a the right player being available and stuff. So o- overall, anyway, I, I think the business model is is generally good because Liverpool don't sign flops and that, that people generally associate investment and new players with strengthening and it, it, it doesn't always work that, that way you can get you can invest in the transfer market you can buy new players it does not mean you have strengthened it does not mean you have improved look at Manchester United last season you know they went, went out the window of, of Rafa Varane Cristiano Ronaldo Jaden Sancho they end up getting 
considerably worse. Um, so Liverpool have really appreciated that basically and, and focused on getting the right player and who's going to actually improve the team all the time. Mm-hmm. And as long as we keep getting successes with, with with that way of working, I have no major problems with it. And I do think Liverpool can still keep competing at the top. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the model works, though, once you don't have Jürgen Klopp at the, at the summit. It will. Um, I think one other thing I would throw into that is the idea that the owners not backing Klopp is the only reason why we haven't, isn't the only reason we haven't signed players. There's been times when the reason we haven't signed players is Klopp. So I I think, I think it's important to remember that point as well. But when we go on to the next question, because I feel like you answered that one very thoroughly. Um, wants to know about the connection of Saleh, Mana and Firmino. Now, he said that it was very clear to see and hard to stop. Bobby drops in to vacate space for the other two. Now, Nunes' style means we are moving away from this. What patterns of play do you see with the new front lineup, and what is trying to be achieved? Well, this is an interesting one for me because from my perspective, there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect between what is happening on the pitch and what I think would be the best way to particularly integrate a new player and a new different way of thinking. It's obvious that Nunes is going to be more on the last line of the defenders, occupying time and space around in and around them. And at the moment, the way we seem to be dealing with that is we're giving him the space to work in, and Salah and Diaz are operating from a wider perspective, whether club wants to admit it or not. The facts are there. However, if you've got someone particularly as good in the air as Darwin Nunes, and we've seen Liverpool when he has played, they haven't been afraid to target him with long balls from either Allison or Van Dyke to try and get him to win aerial challenges. If you're doing that, <clears throat> he needs players around him to pick up the balls when he wins those challenges or for him to play the ball onto. I mean, we saw it in the game against Ajax with Luis Diaz. The, the way that Mo Salah's goal came, Diaz ball, Diaz headed the ball onto Jota. Jota found Salah. Salah found the corner. That's a blueprint. You you put Nunes in exactly where Diaz was in that situation. That's the way forward. But obviously, it's not the only way forward because he has the speed in behind as well. So when you are playing against teams who are maybe looking to condense the space, then that's another matter. That's when you really want to have all three of the forwards close to each other, maybe allowing the fullbacks to use all of that space outside to keep that width, to allow them to work narrowly. You've seen it with PSG, the way that they've changed this season from last season. They are playing with wingbacks now, which means that those players are occupying more space, which means that the front three are closer together and you've seen it, they're passing to each other, they're scoring goals amongst each other. Everything's looking wonderful. I think that's the way forward for us as well. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. I've got a question from uh, Paul McGee. He says, given the gaps between games since the start of this season, why are the squad not more rested and more tactically prepared to win games? And he touches on how Klopp has been you know, always telling fans that they have no preparation between games, but that hasn't been the case this time around, so it's it's not really an excuse. So I don't I don't necessarily think it's a case of 
Liverpool suffering because they're not tactically prepared or they're not rested. I think it's it's more a case of rather than being rested. I think the, the, the I think the team are kind of affected by the exploits of last season. Basically, you got to remember Liverpool played every single game, every cup final. Um, some of those cup finals were in extra time and penalties. Very mentally drained as well. And uh, by all accounts as well, Sadio Mane in, in Germany is is looking tired, uh, which is interesting, I think, because you know, he's obviously had a different club, different pre-season, but he was at Liverpool last season. So I think that's interesting. So all in all, I don't think it's it's so much Liverpool needing to, to be rested between games. I think it's maybe just more of like a, over time, like a gradual drain on on the team, maybe. I do have this slight, um, almost conspiracy theory in me head that maybe Liverpool have got pre-season wrong in some way, shape or form. I'm, I'm absolutely no expert on the physical demands of the game and all that sort of stuff. But if you do have a, a, a season that is so demanding like last season was, and then you have a normal boot camp pre-season where you kind of kill the players essentially to, to build up the workloads for the upcoming season, Maybe it's worked against us this time. I'm not sure. I mean, Liverpool played something like five or six friendlies, and even after the first game of the season, we were due to face Aston Villa the following day in a behind and closed doors game. That ended up getting cancelled. But if you look at that in contrast to City, I think City played something like two friendlies, if that. Um, their second friendly might have been Liverpool in the charity, charity Shield, Community Shield, whatever it's called nowadays. Um, so I think Liverpool might just be overall kind of a bit drained, if I'm honest, mm-hmm. uh, which is why the World Cup might benefit the, the squad quite considerably, actually. And in terms of being tactically prepared, again, I don't think it's a lack of preparation. I think it's more a case of over time. Liverpool have consistently tried to evolve their tactics, and I think they've maybe got a little bit galaxy brain with it and moved away from almost the principles of what made them great in 2018-19. Uh, that the, the crux of what the idea was at the time and seems like a really disciplined midfield covering for really offensive fullbacks and the front two darting in behind a man in, in the middle who's going to retreat from in, in towards midfield areas. Um, obviously, Liverpool have changed a little bit since then, considering Darwin Nunes is very different to Firmino and Diaz is a little bit different to, to Mane and things and Thiago's different to Wijnaldum as well. But overall, I think Liverpool have tried to go a little bit too heavy on the evolution. And sometimes you can drift too far from the idea. City did that a few years ago. And it took a, a draw against West Brom for Guardiola to kind of look at a team and think, I don't like this, I'm going back to basics. And maybe Liverpool will go back to basics moving forward. We saw that against Ajax. And hopefully they'll be a bit better. Hopefully they will be a bit better. I think that's fair. Uh, one thing I would say to throw in there, City did have uh, a, a um, friendly with Barcelona during the season. So yeah, true. I don't think it was just us two were a little bit undercooked. And you only really know whether the preseason worked or not by the end of the season because you're meant to be peaking at different times and then there's the World Cup and all that. Anyway, anyway moving on. Next question. <laughs> uh, bar comes from Paul Jessup. Sorry, uh, barring Trent and Jones, our homegrown list is starting to look like a players past their peak quota. Uh, yeah, that's probably fair. Uh, we'll have the likes of Elliot Carvalho 
and Ramsey to come in, but where is the new homegrown talent coming from? Well, as someone who also does the Academy show on Blood Red, check it out. There are quite a few in there who may well be working their way into the squad. I mean, we've seen Bicestich already, but obviously we've seen a little bit of Kai Gordon. He's only just coming back from injury now. But there's a few others in there who may well find themselves with squad places, particularly in and around the uh, reserves. So I think about the likes of Connor Bradley might be coming through at some point. We've seen Tyler Morton, although there is a lot of talk to say that Tyler Morton may end up moving on at the end of the season. But the plan for that principally will be to grow from within. Obviously, there is the rather large Brummy elephant over in Dortmund at the moment who would help that particular quota also. But you could also say that he will probably just be balancing out Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. So we might be back to zero on that one. The issue is, clearly, the price of players from an English perspective is high. I mean, obviously, I forgot about Calvin Ramsey. He counts as well, doesn't he? Um, but when you're looking at English players, there is a premium on them. So the idea of buying players for that quota specifically is always going to be problematic. So I believe that Liverpool will be thinking that they can bring one or two through from within on that score. So I've got a question from, um, let's have a look, Tahir Iqbal, another regular contributor, if I'm not mistaken. He says, last year I asked a question about Graham Potter. What are your thoughts on his time at Brighton and what are you expecting, if anything, at Chelsea? Uh, interesting question. So in, in terms of Potter, yeah, we have spoken about him quite a lot on this show because obviously this is supposed to be focusing on analytics and according to analytics, Brighton have always been very well coached, um, which is how you can kind of identify whether a team is, is profiting from the coach. Whereas if, if the team are kind of conceding more goals than the numbers suggest, or they're not scoring as much goals as the numbers suggest, it probably suggests that the players are the issue rather than the coach. And Brighton tends to do really well. In terms of Potter's fit at Chelsea, um, I think it's interesting. He's he's got a he's got a squad there that he can definitely use. He's got a very flexible squad. Players who can play in multiple different positions across the board. I think that will suit him. He likes to change things up a lot. Likes to play offensive football, which will be nice. The only issue is he I'm not sure he is the <sighs> the, the the figure, the the character that, that Chelsea kind of tend to demand, you know, like a Mourinho or a mm. Conte or just those really horrible figures <laughs> that Chelsea seem to like. Potter almost seems too nice for Chelsea. Um, and another on top of that, Potter is quite a long-term coach who, who develops over time. And I do think Chelsea will change under on, on Todd Bowley. I do think that's the plan. I know we, I know it looks like they're still very much in the Abramovich era buying everyone under the sun and sacking Thomas Tuchel very quickly and things like that. But I do think possible now be in charge for quite a while, but it might Chelsea fans in particular might struggle to move away from the whole as soon as there's any kind of decline, the manager gets sacked immediately. Potter for Potter to do his best work, he'd have to be in charge for a few years. Um but if he's empowered and if Chelsea develop on the bowley like like they probably will, because he is he is a top operator. He, he hasn't really maybe showed it as much just yet. 
but based on his exploits in America, he does know what he's doing. Todd Bowley. So um if Potter gets the support around him, there's absolutely no reason why he can't he can't become would he be the first English manager to win the Premier League? Yeah. Yeah, I think he I think he's good enough to do that. Um maybe maybe not until Klopp and Guardiola or particularly Guardiola, maybe not until them two move away from things, but I think Potter's good enough to do that. No, uh, it's it's hard to disagree. I, it's understandably a risk going to Chelsea because of all the short turnerism that you mentioned, but it's probably a risk worth taking at this stage. We'll have to wait and see on that one. So, Stephen Kinsella has asked a question that I'm sure quite a few people will want to know the answer to. What does the data say to compare Jude Mellingham to the Liverpool squad? Seen him play a lot, but not necessarily sure what kind of player we will be getting. This is an important question, this. It is. Because I think there is not really... There is a hard and fast answer, but then there's also not a hard and fast answer. Because you can look at the numbers... And you can compare what he did to Dortmund last season compared to what he did to Liverpool's midfielders. But then you have to consider, would he be doing the same job if he was there? Would he be playing in the same position? Last season, he was playing as part of a three-man midfield, but he was the most advanced man in the midfield. So if you look at his numbers for attacking output, in terms of goals, he got two, which is as many as anyone in the Liverpool side. He got five assists, which is two more than anyone in the Liverpool side. So 162 minutes per goal assist, only bettered in the Liverpool team by Cato and Jones, but obviously volume of numbers was massively in Bellingham's favour there. Then you look at forward, you think about dri- dribbling. He's very much ahead on all those metrics. Uh, his tackles are down, but then again, you look at the actual success rate of the tackles is high. So if he was playing in a position where it would be more needed of him, he'd be able to do it. And that's the key. I really do think he's the kind of midfielder who you could ask to do any job within the midfield and he'd excel at it. Whether you're getting the best out of him there remains to be seen. For example, Dortmund are currently playing him in the double pivot, which will be very much of interest to Liverpool because I do believe that's kind of where we're looking at him. He's playing alongside a more defensive midfielder in Sally Oschan who is at the moment the one doing all of the tackling, whereas he's able to dictate the tempo, showing a good amount of discipline in terms of his positional stuff while still being able to affect tack. So in terms of what he does on a football pitch, you can make a case for him being good in all midfield areas. Very similar to what we saw with Naby Keita when he was at Leipzig. So this is why I say it's very important to know what job he will be doing in that Liverpool midfield before we start talking about suitability. I think he's fantastic. I think he's clearly better than nearly every midfielder that we've already got. And I think in terms of how he can dictate the future of this team, it's massive. Yeah, it's an interesting question because, you know, we, we talk a lot about Bellingham. English media talk a lot about Bellingham. But you don't actually really consider that. A lot of Liverpool fans in particular probably haven't seen very much of him. You know, he, he's not played in the Premier League. Um, Dortmund, I know, was a Champions League team that you'll watch. He's played bits for England. So although he's hyped as this next big thing, in terms of what he is as a type, a lot of people in England probably aren't really that aware. So 
it's quite an important question, but as you say, he's um, he, he is very much a, a jack of all trades type player by the looks of it. Uh, good height. Um, as you say, so far this season he's played as part of a midfield two, but in my opinion, he looks most most at home maybe on the on the left of a, of a midfield three. I would say I think um, as kind of like a box to box number eight because he's got that he's got that industry about his game, the energy, the running power, the ability to penetrate in behind, tendency to nick a goal as well. So. If I was to compare him to any any player, just to provide, you know, players a bit more familiar with with listeners, he's kind of like a weird hybrid, I would say, of almost Wine Alden and Stephen Gerrard. I think that's that's I, I, I put him somewhere around around that. I don't really know what that looks like, but Wine Alden can can do that. He can. He's very adaptable, very versatile mm. player. Uh, Decent on a dribble when he wants to be as well. Has that tendency to, to pop up in big moments and score big goals. Good in the air. And Gerard had that just raw power, um, drive, ability to play in different areas, can play and influence the game. Maybe, I'd say, Bellingham maybe falls short a little bit of Gerard when it comes to his his passion, I don't think he's any, uh, much of an elaborate passer. He's more inclined in the traditional English way, I suppose, to, to influence the game with his physicality and things like that. But overall, he's looking like an interesting player. And as you say, Mo, he can, if you look at the Liverpool field, he can probably just play anywhere, really. You know, he's, yeah. he's looking like he, he's got a, he's got everything, really, hasn't he? It's interesting as well, you mentioned Wijnaldum, because I was recently speaking to Musa Kwonga, specifically about Bellingham. And Wijnaldum was the Liverpool player that he mentioned as well. So you're not a million miles away there. When I look at him, I think if we can get Thiago and Fabinho operating the way that Alonso and Mascherano did, then he can do the Gerrard stuff. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. What a question from Dan Salisbury, on the regular listener, I think. He says. Just a basic one. Midfielders, who you would like us to sign? Um, <laughs> difficult one, that actually, because I, I haven't really kept my finger on the pulse so far this season. And a lot of the players who I did like seems to have moved to different clubs and things like that. Obviously, I would like Bellingham for obvious reasons. We've just touched on that. Seems to be ideal. Might be a bit expensive, but seems to be ideal. Um, I also think. There's been weird links to Matthias Nunes still, even though he's just gone to Wolves. Maybe there's, an, there's something in that. He does look like a good player. I do like him as well. I still like Ibrahim Sangarek as well. I mentioned him during the summit. He's at PSV. After being linked to Liverpool and after things going quiet, he signed a new contract at PSV. Until I think 2027. But then after signing that contract towards the end of the deadline, Chelsea got linked with him. Now, I know Chelsea got linked with everybody, <laughs> but the fact he got linked with him despite signing a new deal tells me that maybe he signed kind of a Luis Suarez concept at Liverpool where he's just got better terms and probably includes a release clause in there. So if that's the case, maybe Sangare is still attainable. And I also had a look last week at a lad called Enzo Fernandez of Benfica mm-hmm. uh, after seeing a few links. 
He's only just gone there from River Plate. So again, it would be a bit of an issue when it comes to a long contract. You have to pay more, you know, basis. But as a player, he does look very good. He looks very keen on the ball. Um, he's a magnet already. I think when I had a look the other day, I think he's played eight games so far in the Portuguese top flight. And I think he's completed over 100 passes in four of them. Um, now, that obviously doesn't offer much of an insight into his ability. But in terms of his tendency to get on the ball, offer a passing option, be that player in the middle who kind of conducts, if you like, he's got that about him. And, um, you know, he's a little bit industrious when he's, when he's without the ball and stuff. So he looks pretty good as well. I think he's only 21. And then you've obviously got Nico Barella, who's, who's very, very good. He's another player who, who I'm sure would be great for Liverpool. Not so much in the the physical monster mould of, of previous Liverpool midfielders, maybe more in the Thiago mould. But, crucially, he's good enough to be a bit more slight like Thiago is because of how good he is technically and how good he is in his head. Um, but they're, they're just a few off the top of my head that look really good and Liverpool might explore, but it'll be interesting to track that as we go forward and maybe in January or closer to Christmas or whatever, we can do a little bit of a transfer committee type pot look on who Liverpool can actually get. I like the sound of that. Another name I'd throw into the mix is uh, Manu Kone uh, at Borussia Glad- Mönchengladbach. I like yeah. the look of him as well. Definitely want to keep an eye on. Okay, uh, next question here comes from Lee Connor. It says, great show, Josh. Thanks, Lee. Um, with this presumed <laughs> wider role, do you think Klopp has instructed Salah to be more of an assist king this year focused on getting goals for Darwin Nunes and getting him integrated into the team. Um, I mean, if he did, then I imagine that's quite the tough sell <laughs> for a guy who's been literally collecting golden boots like most of us collect hot dinners. <laughs> I, I do think it's the idea of adding it to his bow, although, we again, we have to remember that he did get more assists than anyone else last season. So, Maybe there is something in that, the idea of saying that you can be more of a creator in terms of giving defences another thing to think about. So if a defender thinks that he's always just going to try to work an angle for a shot, that they can defend you in a certain way. But if they think that you're also got your eye up looking for the right pass, then obviously then they can't be, they have to do things differently. So there's that that comes into it. But no. To be honest with you, what I think he said to Salah is we need to get Nunes into the team, but you're still Mo Salah. So wherever you are on the pitch, I'm still looking at you as be the guy who scores goals as well as everyone else. So the idea of Klopp saying, it's all right, you don't need the golden boot this year, just get 20 assists. Yeah, I, I can't see that being the case, to be honest with you. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> I've got a question from uh, Sampo Latinen. Another regular contributor, actually, I think I'm seeing a lot of familiar names here. So many teams are known for developing young, talented players. Are there any clubs that are especially good in developing talented managers? And are they, by any chance, the same clubs that are, the go- that are good at developing players? Interesting question. Um, I would say... Quite a few clubs 
pop off the top of my head. I wouldn't say they're necessarily developing the managers. They're just good at kind of identifying them and almost taking a chance with them. And it's usually the clubs that are quite progressive, willing to take a risk, uh, willing to think outside the box, take a gamble and all that sort of stuff. So obviously Red Bull comes to mind, the Red Bull clubs, because they have they do develop their own coaches. That's, that's a little bit different. They have their own kind of network where, you know, you can progress through through the ranks um, do a bit of what Jesse Marsh did maybe where he's he's in charge of Salzburg grows at Salzburg wins gets to a point where he then gets offered the job at Leipzig but he, although although he didn't do particularly well now he's at Leeds United so I think those that come through Red Bull generally have similar identities a really clear idea of what they want to be uh, usually quite tactically developed quite tactically astute um, so they're usually very good other clubs as well. I mean, I, I would start to put Brighton in this mold now. I think Brighton really know what they're doing when it comes to coaches. <clears throat> Obviously, they've just got Graham Potter, who has gone to Chelsea, did a great job there. I think after about 12, in fact, it might have been about six months during his time at Brighton, they gave him something like a six year contract because they knew he was good and they knew that other clubs would start circling. So they got to keep all of them for another few years. And now they've just got um, the Zerbi, I think it is, from uh, Sassuolo who is, again, very good, very progressive. Looking forward to seeing what he does with Brighton. And I would also throw in one of the clubs that Zerbi was at, I think, is is Shakhtar Donetsk. Yep. They're another club that have generally done quite well with with, club, uh, with managers over the years. They had a... Um, oh, his name has escaped me. What's his name? He <laughs> I'm not sure who you it's mean. Got, totally gone. Oh, Fonseca. Paolo Fonseca. Oh. Um, he's very good. I think end up winning soon. Um, but yeah, there's, there's loads of clubs that have off the top of my head just have an affinity for, for identifying top coaches. Brentford are probably, you can probably group Brentford in that brand now. And it's... any others might want it off the top of your head? Um, well, it, it does seem a little bit obvious, but Ajax, I think obviously the system helps, but yeah. at the same time, yeah. I do think that if you've got someone who's anyone who's versed in that system, then they are adaptable. It is such a good breeding ground for players and coaches alike. So I'd throw them in. I also think that Porto do quite well in terms of not necessarily yeah. the main managers, but a lot of their assistant coaches have come through and gone on to do big things. Yeah, so they're another one to watch out for. So my yeah, next definitely. question here. It's a really interesting one, actually. And I had to, I'm glad that you had a long answer because it's allowed me to sit and really think about this. Uh, Rishi Hargavan wants to know, what is a football stat or metric that doesn't currently exist that you'd like to see someone create and why? And again, I have to say, I had to think about this because there is almost a stat and a metric for everything. But I have come up with something. Something that I always think about is when you look at numbers for clearances, for example, defensive clearances, they're all kind of measured the same. So anytime someone gets the ball a certain distance away, it's considered a clearance. However, there is a very big difference between getting the ball away to an opponent and getting the ball away to your team because one of them stops the attack and one of them doesn't. So I'd quite like to see that the percentage of, of clearances that actually find a teammate. 
because this is something that has bugged me about Liverpool for quite some time. Whenever I'm watching, Virgil van Dijk is very, very good at making his head clearances find Liverpool shirts. Everybody else is rubbish. And, <laughs> and I don't know whether or not this is just another one of those things that Virgil van Dijk's better than everyone at, or whether or not it's just something that I've noticed in particular. But I would very much like to see the stats on it because it's not necessarily something you think about. You're just thinking about getting the ball out. But if you are a team under pressure, for example, it matters. If you aren't releasing that pressure with that clearance, then you're not really gaining from it. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. I've got a question from Josh Anon. I'm not sure if that stands for anonymous. <laughs> Are you sure the question isn't from you? <laughs> <laughs> well, if it was, it's a good question. So I'll be patting myself on the back, I think. Uh, so it says, hi, guys. Uh, what do you think about the idea that's being floated that our transfer strategy has shifted under Julian Ward? Um, yeah, I've seen this myself, and I've, I've, I might have even played into that as a once with. I'm not really sure. But... Yeah, every time you think that Liverpool's recruitment approach, every time you think that you know it, they'll maybe throw a curveball at you and surprise you. A couple of years back, we were all very quick to rule out Thiago Alcantara as a signing, simply because he was he was 29. Yeah. Um, but then he ends up at Anfield. Um, in Luis Diaz, again, he was a player who hadn't really done it for that long. Um, and that was probably one of the main and he was very very expensive as well considering he was arriving from outside the Europe's top five leagues but Liverpool went there and then Darwin Nunes you know 85 million for the lad who's basically done it for one season and and that one season was um, again in the Portuguese top flight the sixth best league in, in Europe according to coefficients so it, it's and he's a striker, you know. He doesn't necessarily fit with the with the four three three that Klopp's established over the past couple of years. He is a bit of a, an alternative fit, you know. He's six foot three or so, so he's it's 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 a different one. Um, so I, I I don't know. I really don't know on this. People, some people have suggested that Liverpool have moved away from the whole data thing, and maybe I mean the the number of. Silence from Portugal is a bit of a thing, isn't it? Like that is that is Ward using his network there. You know, Linders is having a bit of an influence. Maybe we saw the scouting reports in his book that he he wrote in in reference to Diaz and and things like that. We know Linders watches the Portuguese top flight a lot, and we end up signing two best players from there. Um, so I don't know. I, I think Liverpool. The bottom line is the club are adaptable when it comes to the market. The club will always do whatever it. Whatever move will will kind of improve the team the most, um, within reason, obviously, and I think that just is always changing. I'd, I'd be surprised if Liverpool have moved away from any data-driven approach, considering John Henry still in charge of of Liverpool overall. I think that's that's embedded now into how how things work, and I think you'd hear murmurs if if that was the case. But I don't know. Have you got any thoughts on that one more? Um, sorry, what? Sorry. <coughs> Oh, sorry, excuse me there. I was just looking into the stats for my next question. <laughs> go on, you can go on to the next question, mate, no worries. Um, well, the reason I was looking into stats for the next question, because it's a very stats-heavy question, uh, it's concerning Diogo Jota, it comes from Mick. It's like, he finds Jota a very frustrating player to watch live, 
poor hold-up play, loses the ball often, which is highlighted even more when he's not scoring goals. Um, sorry, I'm just going on here. Uh, he really needed that preseason. Unfortunately, picked up the injury. I don't share the excitement some fans have with his return. I think he weakens us defensively. Please tell me I'm wrong and set me straight, as I'd love for him to succeed. Well, for starters, Mick, I'm glad you're hoping for him to succeed. But I kind of know where this comes from. Um, essentially, the hold-up play part of Jota's game does get highlighted a lot when you're playing in a central position. And anyone who's been playing in that central position for Liverpool is going to be highlighted when you think about what we got from peak Bobby Firmino, that was the key, the knitting of all the play together. It was so crucial, particularly as we said before, Josh, when you're operating with a more functional midfield. The difference is the midfield is slightly less functional when you've got a Thiago in there. So <clears throat> while Jota's numbers might not necessarily be where they want them to be in terms of losing possession, I believe, in fact, let me just check, he's very low in terms of the percentile in losing possession, 41, 41st percentile according to FP ref, which is bad. Yeah. But you think about the position he is on the pitch, a lot of time taking risks requires that. I'm not as concerned that he's that damaging in terms of the overall build-up play, because as I say, we now do have Thiago. I think you're right, Mick, in saying that that injury has come at a bad time and we've seen... He's not always the quickest to return to, to sharpness when it comes from injury. We saw that, in fact, every time he's come back from an injury, it's kind of taken him a couple of games to get up to speed. So I'm not worried. I think what we are going to see develop is he's going to be the one to capitalise on broken play. That's where he's at his best. But also, once this team starts functioning as a team, is able to start creating chances on a regular basis. We are going to see that because he's definitely giving us something. I mean, he's very high in terms of progressive carries with the ball. So he's committing defenders still. He's still creating spaces and his passing percentage is still quite good. So when he is opening those spaces, he's able to do something with the ball. So I think it's more to do with the fact that ball's bouncing off him when you're playing up to him at a time when you need to strike to hold on to the ball and you're under pressure. Those are always going to feature more in your mind when you're assessing the player. But overall, I still think he's much more upside than downside with Jota. And I'm sure he'll get the chance to preview it. Yeah. So Tom Culture has been in touch and he says, hey, lads, following a conversation that I had on Twitter with Josh, the other week, and I remember this, <laughs> uh, regarding the optics of Julian Ward's first transfer window, I have a follow-up question to ask. If you two had been jointly in charge of recruitment since 2020, what would you have done differently? Try to remove hindsight from the equation, but obviously that could be, that could be tricky. So, yeah, overall, I mean, I'll be honest, I haven't had enough time <laughs> to think about this question, and properly answered thoroughly or anything like that but overall I'm pretty happy with, with how Liverpool do things I always have been I think Liverpool are really really efficient really future planners and I, I do like it there's always a plan behind everything so I wouldn't criticise what Liverpool have done too much and if I was to go back and say right that would I would have done differently in terms of the injury crisis that Liverpool encountered and ended up getting Ozan Kabak on deadline day I would have been more aggressive 
on January 1st. And I, I would have ideally, I mean, I'm, I'm talking from a complete outsider's perspective here. Yeah, maybe it's harder than this in the real world. But I would have been a lot more aggressive when it comes to loaning a centre-back. I, I still don't think I would have been keen to sign one if... Um, if I if I knew Canate was lined up for the summer, because I do rate Canate very highly. I think he's got world class potential. I think he could be close to Van Dijk's level if he if he keeps going the, the way he's going. Um, and you don't just want to sacrifice that for the sake of six months worth of games. Um, so I I would have been really aggressive when it comes to sourcing a good centre back to sign on loan, and maybe paying a bit more than you want to pay really to get that in. But I think the fact that we waited a full month before doing that and then got in Ozan Kabach and Ben Davis, who'd never even played, that that looked a bit amateur, I felt. Um, and on top of that, the only other thing that had changed is I think over the past couple of windows, I, since Thiago, so not including Thiago window, but after Thiago, I, I would have also got in a midfielder by now, a central midfielder. And I think there's been plenty on the market, really good players who as well. One of them, Samantha, who I was aware of when he moved to England was is Bruno Gimares. I think he's very, very good. I, I am a I am a fan of him. I think he's very intense. He can play as a six, he can play as an eight, very progressive, attack minded, inclined to make a goal. I would have really tried for him. I think a few years back if it was if I was in charge. Um and I, I, I think to go to move forward this summer with no midfield additions apart from Arthur on loan is a bit of a risk, I think. Um, but yeah, other than that, I'm generally happy with what Liverpool have done over the past few years. But Mo, as usual, mate, we haven't got through anywhere near the full amount of questions. <laughs> Welcome to the Q and A. No, I, I mean there are quite a few of them who I feel I'm looking at now, and I kind of answered in part with other questions. So there's a few more people who will be happy than the ones who we shouted out. But yeah, big thanks to all of you for bringing in these questions for giving us something to think about. Yeah, I mean as I said, we've got plenty of other questions in there. We've got Mike Pearson, Mark Lloyd, uh, Mark Leon, sorry, CJ Capazzi. <laughs> Um, Ryan Beaton, Beaton, loads of questions. Sorry if we didn't get to yours. Sorry if we didn't call out your name. But uh, you know, maybe we can we can extend this next week. We'll, we'll see how we go. We'll see if there's any any talking points for us to address. But Mo, hopefully you enjoyed your first uh, Q and A, uh, and thanks for joining us, mate. I did. I did. It was fun. And yeah, I apologise for not always paying attention to your answers. <laughs> <laughs> no, listen, mate, I'm the same sometimes. Um, so yeah, thanks for tuning in. And uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks, thanks for sending in your questions. And uh, yeah, we'll see you then. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.